0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. This is John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. This is um, when Jesus first appears to his disciples after having risen from the tomb. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Vine community. I'm so proud of you guys for coming. I know a lot of people uh, are planning on coming to the Crawfish Bowl tonight, and that, for them, checks off the box of going to church on Sunday, and here you are. I'm so proud of you. Or maybe you just hate Crawfish, and you're not going to go tonight, so that might be it, too. But I'm so glad you guys are here, in particular because I know—I'm not sure if you should have favorites— but this is by far my favorite story in the series that we are going through in this Stations of the Resurrection series that we're going through. Um, for some in the church tradition, they practice different seasons of the church calendar, and we are in this, this is the season of Eastertide, where we live into the reality that Jesus did not only just r- uh, rise from the dead, but actually spent time with his followers to teach them what that promise meant. And so... Uh, this is by far my favorite story in this series. I'm not not sure if you should have favorites, but it's my favorite because it's quintessential for this day and this age, and what we need, I think, as a a society, Uh, because this story, I believe, tackles a couple things that are just really important. One, it tackles the power of fear. Second, what does it mean to doubt? And then third, I think it, it actually addresses the number one reason why people do not believe in God. And it's all within this beautiful story here in John 20. This story actually builds off of the sermon that Fabs preached last week. She gave a great sermon talking about Mary, the apostle to the apostles, and how she had this experience with Jesus and goes and, and, and tells the other disciples her good news. And this story happens that very night that very night, these uh, men had their own encounter with the risen Jesus. The text reads, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Though Mary's words were heard by these disciples, they were still struggling. They're struggling to believe. They're struggling to understand what was going on. That We find that in their con- their condition, through this, these little words right here, we find here, you can find it in verse 19, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. These disciples were hiding. They, they were afraid. They thought that they might be next, that they would be lynched next. And so they were afraid. They were hiding. And these doors were locked. And yet, Jesus showed up. We rarely find Jesus doing this, I believe. We rarely find Jesus entering into places where he's not invited. If you read the Gospels, there's this, this kind of gentleness to Jesus where Jesus doesn't force himself upon people. He doesn't manipulate or coerce. Instead, Jesus seems to be attracted to a desperate need, an openness, a faith-filled openness for other, from other people, and Jesus enters into that. But not on this evening. This is not one of those times. Jesus would not be shut out Due to their fear, Jesus not would be. He would not be held back because of the doors were locked. Jesus appeared in the midst of their fear, stood among them, and gave them peace. It makes me wonder, where are the locked doors in my own life? Like where is fear shutting me down and hemming me in? I know for many of us, the reality of anxiety and fear is just this constant drip in our life. And there's places within our own being that perhaps we can, we just know it's closed off to this world. And I, I am so heartened by this story by Jesus showing up uninvited in the midst of fear. This makes me think, makes me think so clearly, Jesus will never be limited by our fear. Instead, Jesus show up. This story shares how Jesus is uniquely present with those who know the feeling of anxiety, of confusion, of chaos and fear. And what does Jesus do? Verse 21, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, not only does Jesus speak peace, but then Jesus breathes on them. I'm not sure If that's something that you would want from someone who's been dead for three days. Yeah, please breathe on me. But there's something deeper going on here. There's something actually quite profound. I think what is happening here in this breath. These disciples thought everything was done. Like the the chapter was written. Everything had fallen apart. All was lost. Their story would be a story of death, disappointment, of confusion. But then Easter happened And with it, there would be life again. There would be this re-Genesis. For the Jewish reader, they would see this story and light bulbs would be going off. Because in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, we find how God chose to create humanity. And this is what the text reads. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. And then, notice this, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being in this poetic writing, God sculpted humanity from the dirt and clay of the ground, but humanity was not alive until God breathed life into uh, Adam and this breath is what awoke the soul and enlivened humanity and here the disciples, here they are i mean they're they're living, but they're not quite fully alive in this. Room hidden in fear, and Jesus shows up in their night of despair and breathes them back into life again. Jesus is not only alive, but He wants to bring them back to life. And notice what He says as He breathes upon them receive the Holy Spirit. Now, for those who've been around uh, with our church for a while, we've had this series where we talked about the Holy Spirit, I think it was just like half a year ago. And if you were around then, you'll remember the word for the Spirit, the the Hebrew word for Spirit is the exact same word for breath. They're the same. Spirit and breath are synonymous. The Spirit is the breath of God that we are learning to breathe in this life. As a follower of Jesus, it means that we are learning to breathe again. And what makes this incredible is that what we have now are learning, what science is teaching us about our neurobiology, about everything that happens through the power of breath, we now know how important it is the way in which we breathe. Studies have shared and concluded that our breathing habits directly correlate to our physical, emotional, mental health. Biochemists are now discovering that deep breathing creates and initiates Brain development boosts the immune system, regulates emotions, and strengthens the body. A line from our series that has stayed with me is this: it is difficult to control the mind and change the body, but we can change how we breathe, and that does both and i 'm reading this story in John chapter twenty, and these disciples needed all of that. these disciples needed to have some sort of anchor for their emotions. They needed some sort of mental clarity. They needed to get back in their bodies and feel again. And so here Jesus is saying, breathe the spirit of peace. It's here. It's in your midst. Breathe in the spirit of the resurrected Jesus. Allow it to transform you from the inside out. The story is teaching us that the spirit that brought the Savior back from death can meet all of people in rooms locked in fear. That includes you and me today. That the spirit of peace can be breathed upon us if we can learn to take it in, to allow it to fill us. And all of this, all of this took place because Jesus showed up. He was physically present with them like flesh and blood. He was, he was there. And this seems really important for the early Christians to make make obvious is that Jesus wasn't just like a Casper ghost floating around and like appearing oddly, but Jesus was actually flesh and blood. He was actually tangible. He was tactile. Jesus' resurrection was an embodied resurrection. Have you ever noticed, if you look at these different stories or stations of the resurrection, have you ever noticed how there's a physicality to Jesus? Like we find Jesus hungry we find Jesus asking for a meal. Last week, Mary was clinging, physically clinging to Jesus. Jesus broke bread in Emmaus. And here in Jerusalem, G- Jesus is showing up with his wounds. For me, this deepens the, in the values, the work that we've done on, on embodied spirituality because the outcome of the resurrection is not just to get out of the body. It's not like a way of escaping the shell that we call ourselves or our body. What we find here in the resurrection, what we find here with the resurrected Jesus is there is a display of a transformation through our physicality, through our physical bodies. And what we will see in this story is that Jesus' embodied experience is so, it's, it's the avenue in which transformation took place. Through his breath, through his words, through his wounds, all of it is how people were transformed. What an incredible moment. In verse 20, after Jesus said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is why I love this this, uh, illustration that Scott Erickson, he created, because what you see here, for me, what I see here is this process of transformation, We see this process of transformation. And for me, it's not only like the light and dark in it, but it's also the smallness of the clenched fear that we experience and how there's an enlivening. There's an enlarging that takes place, not only just to be open, but also to have enough stillness to allow peace to rest upon us. Isn't that beautiful? In the station, we can see this motion from fear to immense joy, to incredible joy, and how that changed everything. Can you imagine being in the room for that moment? Can you imagine like being in the room and seeing that take place? Now, can you imagine missing out on it? <laughs> this is where we enter the story of Thomas. Where was Thomas? He went out to the store real quick to buy a couple things, came back, and he missed it, right? Right? Something like that. I hate, I absolutely hate missing out on things. I have like severe FOMO. It drives my life, it drives my calendar, it drives my wife insane. I want to be there just in case it happens. Uh, Last weekend, I had an experience of this. I spent three days canoeing the Rio Grande River through Big Bend, and every night we would sleep underneath the stars. We We would be really smart and we would just sleep on an inflatable mattress on the rocks in the middle of the Rio Grande River, and my least favorite part of the trip was laying, in the, laying underneath the stars, hoping to catch a shooting star, and I can't tell you how many times this happened, where I would talk to someone, I'd learn, uh, lean over, and someone would say, oh my God, did you see that? <laughs> like, over and over again, and after a while, I was like, are y'all messing with me? Like, is, are you guys coordinating this? Or you're waiting for me to look away? I hate missing out on things. It's an awful feeling. And Thomas missed out on the thing, like the thing, the big thing, the thing that changed everything. And so this is what we find in this story in verse 25. So the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But then Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And with that, Thomas is forever known as Thomas the Doubter. doubter. D- d- does anyone dislike that name? Like, give the guy a break, you know? Let's be a little gentle with this man. And poor guy missed it. Wouldn't you be on the same boat? Like, wouldn't you be like, uh, not there yet? I'm not just going to take your word for it. Because imagine Thomas's emotions, like emotional, severe whiplash. He went in from like, walking in with Jesus on Palm Sunday. Things are happening. We're going into power. I'm his right-hand man, maybe secretary of the state. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is arrested. He's publicly and violently lynched, humiliated. He becomes a corpse, put in a tomb, and everything falls apart. And Thomas is there locked in despair and sadness, does not know what happens. But then all of a sudden, Easter takes place. And all around Thomas, not to him, but all around him, Jesus starts popping up in other people's life to say, no, no reason to have despair anymore. I'm here, let's celebrate things. And Thomas is reluctant. And Thomas here isn't saying, he's not saying like, it's a crock of lies, I don't believe it, y'all are stupid, it's foolish, no way it happened. Instead he's saying, I just need to see what y'all saw. Like, I, I just wasn't in the room, and until I have this encounter, I, I can't go back there. I can't I can't believe again. And then we throw the stigma of doubting Thomas. So, a word for the doubters in the room, the blessed doubters. I was taught to doubt was akin to sin. I really was like doubting. Uh, like people who doubt, it was like a sign of faithfulness or a hardening of the heart or blindness due to your sin somewhere in your life, you know you've done something wrong and so the, you know, the curtain of faith has now been closed and here you are with doubt. So repent, turn back, believe harder, pray more, study more, fake it until you make it. Like all those things, the solution was just believe or try harder. I actually think that doubt can be a faithful and a necessary step to our faith. A picture for me of doubt that I have, that I have held is doubt is like a wrestling match with God. We have a biblical story where Jacob wrestled with God. He grappled with God when his life was about to go upside down. He spent an evening and he wrestled with God. And that sounds like combative, but you know the awkwardness of wrestling. Like it's intimate. Like you are in each other's business. You are tactile, you are like touching, you are intimate, you are there with each other. And Jacob grappled with God and his life would be forever changed. He even received a new name. A new name, does anyone know what the name of Jacob received? Israel. Israel, like this name that now the people, the Hebrew nation would be forever known as is this name Israel, which literally means one who has wrestled with God. As Christians, Our lineage goes back to that experience, that we, our legacy is people who should know what it means to wrestle with God, to go to God with our questions, to go to God with our, our, just how it doesn't make sense, and to actually wrestle with God. For me, to not doubt means to not question, to not engage with the intimate, a close relationship with one who's not afraid of your questions, your concerns, or your doubts. This is the reason why I think doubting can be beautiful if it is a wrestling match is because you don't wrestle with a belief system. You wrestle in a relationship. That is our legacy. We have come from a lineage of people who should know what it means to wrestle with the divine. And I have come to believe that doubt is closer to faith than absolute blind certainty. Why? Because to doubt is to continue to seek. It has a posture of faith. It makes me think of a quote that I heard some time back by someone named Gibran. He said that tears hollow out places where joy can grow. And for me, I'd like to extend that metaphor by saying that doubt hollows out places in the soul where faith Can grow, that if we can do doubt well, that it actually creates capacity for greater faith, for more courageous and honest faith. There's a way of faithfully doubting, and I actually think that Thomas is kind of modeling it. I don't hear Thomas speaking with his arms crossed in the back of the room with like his chair turned backwards like A.C. Slater, like. Don't believe it. You know, I actually see Thomas, like, with this longing. He, he's frustrated because he's in this liminal space between these two different realities. He's been in between pain and confusion and frustration. And he wants to believe again, but a story from other people aren't going to cut it. Like, it's just not going to be enough. That he needs to experience something firsthand. He's like, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the room. And he needs to encounter it. I actually think this can be instructive for us walking in seasons of doubt in our life that Thomas has not given over to cynicism. He's not closed off. As we read in the story, this is a week after. The second half of this story, this station, is a week after that station. And Thomas is still in the room. He's still hanging out with these guys. They're probably like buzzing off of the excitement of seeing Jesus. And Thomas is, he's still there. He hasn't left He just remains unconvinced, but he remains present. He's open, and this is where I think many of us get lost in doubt, is that we grow cold, we grow hard, we develop a negative framework of seeing life and faith in other other people who believe, and it closes us off to the ability to remain tender, to seek, to ask, to explore open-heartedly. And in our seasons of questions, we need to be open open to God, open to doubt, our doubts. That's why I think I personally would like to rename Thomas, Thomas the Seeker. Agreed, second, motion? Okay, let's do it, all right. Forever called Thomas the Seeker. Um, But notice how, okay, so this is what Thomas says. He says, I'm not gonna believe. Until I touch, until I see, I'm not gonna believe. Verse 26, a week later, notice that a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus repeats the same interaction that he had the first time, this time with Thomas in the room. So he has this moment with all of them, but then he, like, goes to Thomas. Like, he actually draws close just to Thomas, and he directs himself and his attention to Thomas. And then Jesus said in verse 27, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it my side. And then Jesus said, stop doubting and believe. Now, you might read this as Jesus shaming Thomas in front of everyone. Stop doubting and believe, right? But I don't see that. I actually see the opposite because the only way for Thomas to do what Jesus commanded to touch these wounds that Jesus had is that Jesus had to get proximate. He had to get close enough where Thomas could physically just reach out. He is right here, y'all, he is right here with Thomas, and in this closeness that where Thomas could touch him and see the wounds and hear the nearness of that voice. It is in that closeness where Jesus says, "Eye to eye, stop doubting and believe." This is not from a distance. This is not as like an object lesson for everyone else. Don't be like Thomas. This is no. This is one on one, and right here, eye to eye, heart to heart, friend to friend. Jesus invites him to to actually come to belief. This is, to faithfully doubt is an act of intimacy and I think that Jesus draws close to it. That's why I find this passage so comforting. I love this illustration as well. I find this passage so comforting and honestly, I also find it confusing because the resurrected Jesus obviously wasn't just floating around like a divine ghost. He was still embodied. But what confuses me is that Jesus' resurrected body is still wounded. It's still bearing the marks of violence, the marks of of also his compassion. But Jesus is walking around wounded. What is up with that? <laughs> A couple of months ago, when we were exploring our series around embodied spirituality, our sermon around that, our staff was talking about the idea that has been popularized about the uh, the body keeps the score. Y'all familiar with that? So whatever we experience with like emotions, mentally, spiritually, our bodies, kind of, they soak it up and it will keep the score. And in that conversation, and that conversation we we're having as a staff, Fabs commented, she kind of paused and was like, what does it mean that Jesus' resurrected body was still wounded? Still holding the memory of being betrayed and afflicted and wounded. It's true, like Jesus Didn't just ditch the scars when he came back. He didn't come back, you know, porcelain and perfect or whatever. I mean, he was Middle Eastern, not porcelain, my bad. But you know what I'm saying. Like, he's not like imperfect. Uh, Jesus didn't ditch that. Instead, he kept the scars. His body kept the score of violence, betrayal, and toxic religion. It's hard for me to explain, but I've actually come to find great. Uh, healing in that reality—that the wounds of Jesus are cr- crucial to answer a lot of the pain and confusion, especially the doubt that we hold. Because I think the greatest, the greatest reason why people are held back from believing in any God is the problem that theologians call theodicy. It's a theodicy is a word that we maybe have never heard, but we have bumped up against in our life over and over again. It's the belief that. All right, God is all-powerful, and God is all-loving, and yet, in this world, there's so much suffering and pain, there's so much just chaotic violence in our world, and how can we reconcile the fact that we believe that God is all-powerful and all-loving while today there's earthquakes or tornadoes? killing masses or malaria or shells lobbed over borders and God is all powerful and yet there's children dying with bloated stomachs and yet God is all loving like we feel that right we understand that reality and the difficulty of theodicy and many people come to believe that God cannot be both all powerful and all loving maybe God is all powerful but it's not loving so it's not doing much Or God is all-loving, but can't really do anything. God's not all-powerful. We can choose one, or we can choose neither, but we can't choose both. We see that on the global level. We can see that when we see the headlines, but we also, I know we butt up against it in our own personal lives. When we experience our own suffering in our own lives, and all of a sudden, this becomes a difficult thing. For me, it came to a head years ago, driving home from a fundraiser, Uh, my brother-in-law was killed by an 18-wheeler who hydroplaned. And that was that. Maybe three seconds earlier, he would have been fine. Three seconds later, he would have made it home. And it would have been a different story. And permission to be honest? Permission? Okay. Uh, That is why, for me, the most difficult thing in in the uh, Christian belief is this word, providence. I... Struggle with that word providence. This idea that God is uh, fully in control. Control of every detail of our lives. I know there's times where I find that very comforting, but when your husband doesn't make it home for date night and you hear about a bad accident in the highway next to you and you realize you're never gonna hear his laugh again, providence uh, can do some damage. It can scatter a lot of doubt. It can kind of pull the bottom row of the house of cards of your faith and it takes on a different meaning. Jen and I heard about Clay's death when we were on a bucket list trip to Italy, y'all. We were halfway through our trip. We were driving down from the middle of the Tuscany area down to Rome and turned on the phone and had like 30 text messages all apologizing, feeling uh, condolences and that kind of thing. We heard the news. And it was a long drive to Rome, and uh, we were stuck there for 24 hours to get out, to fly out. And I remember checking into the room, and Jen had to go do something. It was the first time for me I was alone. And I remember the feeling, the need to pray, and also like the absolute zero desire to pray, because I was just so stinking angry. And uh, so I fell to my knees. And I didn't, I didn't want to talk to God. And I didn't even have the words. And so I just remember being on my knees and just doing this, just silent, just doing this, going, all right, you're getting all of it. You're getting all my frustration, all my unknowing, all of my anger, all of my sadness. I'm just going to sit here and just kind of have it radiate out of me and just, just give it to you. And I could feel in that moment the seeds of doubt just scattering in my heart and my soul. And we had that day in Rome, and guys, we spent a good amount of time just walking around the city like we were like, experiencing the worst honeymoon ever. You know, like, should we cry outside the Colosseum today? You know, like, maybe we should go by Trevi Fountain and ball our eyes out next to each other. Yeah, let's do that for a little bit. But I remember, like, I decided to go to St. Saint, Saint Peter's Basilica because I could cry, cry in my hotel room or else I could go there. Maybe I could find some comfort there. And so I walked in and something about the grandeur and the beauty and the bigness of this and the masses and the tourism and the show, like something about it like had the opposite effect on me. Like if, like I don't need to know that God's glorious and large. Like something, it was like, it was like my soul was uh, lactose intolerant and I just had a big bowl of queso. Like it was just like I've got to get out of here. This is not doing me right. It felt like a museum to some God that wasn't alive, to be honest. And I was walking out, and if you've been there, you'll maybe have experienced this, but on the way out, there is a statue on the left, a statue that I missed called the Pieta. And it caught my eye, and I stopped for a second. And I just remember thinking, oh, yeah, this is what I need to see today. And it's not this bigness, the grandeur of it all. Uh, but I just need to remember this moment. And it took me a while. And then all of a sudden I realized that Mary was with the same posture that I had in that hotel room. And I was dishing out all my frustration, my anger, my disbelief, and my doubt. And in that right there was Jesus, the wounded. Savior. I've come to believe that how does God answer the issues of theodicy? How does God answer our doubt and marred faith? For me, I don't think God answers it. Jesus doesn't provide a platitude or an escape or a solution. Jesus provides his wounds to all that pain and sorrow our Savior draws close and says, me too. I believe that Jesus He came back as as resurrected with those those wounds, not just to prove that he was an imposter, but he, he did this to prove something else. For all of time, that Jesus will never ignore, discredit, minimize the woundedness of the human condition. He will never do that for all of us, and he never will do it for you. Jesus will never ignore, discredit, minimize the wounds of your own life too. Jesus is not so caught up in his glory that he's unconcerned with the pain in this world, that the scars that you hold, the doubt that you carry. Jesus has and will always bring solidarity. And though it doesn't take it away, there's, some, there's something about it that provides healing from the soul. There's something about the wounds of Jesus that actually finds redemption. Doesn't it take it away? Doesn't promise never to, for us never to experience it? but it actually invites us to move through doubt into this intimate relationship with the wounded Savior. Without the wounds of Jesus, I might fear God. Without the wounds of Jesus, I might believe that God exists, but I would never trust God, and I sure as hell would never love God without the wounds of Jesus. But instead, it's the opposite. In Eastertide, we find Jesus drawing close to people who are locked in fear, those who are riddled with doubts. And this wounded Savior says, you can touch it. You can can touch it, it's right here. It's right here too. You're not alone, you'll never be alone, and this is not the end of the story. Friends, your fear and doubt aren't too strong for Jesus. His body has kept the score, And that's a Savior that we can trust. That's a Savior that we can believe in.
0: We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.